Hello and welcome to Let the Bird Fly, a podcast about living freely in a world given back to us. I am here in my office with Mike, and we are privileged to have Dr. Mark Brown joining us again as well. And today we are going to be talking about intro to theology. All of us uh, in our time here, uh, Dr. Brown not this semester since he's gone to uh, half of a load, part-time teaching, uh, no longer has intro here, but has plenty of experience teaching intro, especially our 105 class. Uh, Mike teaches two sections of intro right now of our 105 class, and I have our 110 intro class every semester. And as we're gearing up with a new spring semester, this was day three of the spring semester. We thought it might be an interesting episode to be able to talk a little bit about intro to theology. What is theology? What are some ways we can divide it up? Um, maybe a little bit of how we intro students to theology here at the college with 105 and with 110. And then uh, if you're out there, maybe you're just getting into theology, maybe you've been doing theology for a while. Uh, what, what's some good ways, though, maybe to get your feet wet, to help someone else get their feet wet uh, as they dig into theology more? And so I don't think I have a lot more to say about it than that, Mike, if you want to go ahead and take us to the disclaimer. This show doesn't speak for our churches, our church bodies, or our employers. To be honest, much of the time it probably doesn't speak for us. We will be thinking out loud a lot. So approach what you hear with a healthy skepticism. Because, well, as a responsible resident of planet Earth, that's probably what you should generally do with almost everything. If you find yourself getting too worked up, tune out, look around, and realize you were just listening to a podcast. That's right, a podcast. So go live free, friends, and don't let us get in the way. And that brings us to our free-for-all, but before we get into it, uh, because I guess my mind is just not working very well today, I forgot to mention uh, in the intro that we are part of the 1517 Podcasting Network. As always, we would encourage you to check that out. There is, I believe, 12 podcasts now. Uh, there's a number of podcasts in that network, a lot of great resources, whether you're looking to do Old Testament stuff, New Testament stuff, apologetics, uh, literature, history plenty out there for you, so you can check that out, the 1517 Podcasting Network. Um, also, Mike, why don't you just briefly remind our listeners, it's something we've been trying to mention a few times as it's coming up here, uh, at the college, something that Mike is offering with another colleague here, uh, physics professor Carrie Keene. Mike, why don't you go ahead and, and do your thing? Yeah, we're going to offer a one-week uh, course on practical apologetics, and so we've mentioned quite a few times the Academy in Strasburg. It's kind of similar to that, although Milwaukee's not Strasburg, and uh, I'm not Dr. Montgomery. But um, if you want uh, something that uh, is stateside, it's only a week long. It's very inexpensive. You can actually do it for college credit. It's a one-credit class, or you can audit it. Either way, if you're interested in that, email me. Um, you can go to wlc.edu slash apologetics for more information there. It's in June 11th to 14th, whatever that week is, uh, Monday through Friday. And we'd love to have you. So if you're interested in taking some uh, um, some time to read up and then be taught some apologetics, uh, WLC is your place. All right. And then just finally, we would remind you to please do uh, subscribe if you're not yet. Um, that really helps kind of us get a sense for who all is listening. And we are at, by last count, at 96 ratings and reviews on iTunes. The goal that was set for us uh, for next October, for the coming October, that is, was 100. And you guys have really taken us from, I think we were in the 60s, to 96 now. So we are like Moses looking uh, into the promised land. And we just need four of you to be our Joshua uh, and lead us there to get us our 100 ratings or reviews on iTunes. We very much do appreciate it. And as always, as you comment, share, email, uh, that really does help expand the conversation. That gets us, though, to our free-for-all topic. And maybe, Mark, I'll throw it to you first, but we thought for our free-for-all we wouldn't do anything uh, too fancy, but just kind of talk a little bit about what we are teaching this semester. So, Mark, uh, What's your classes this semester? Well, I'm still on a, a half-time semi-retired schedule, as 
as you said. Um, so my schedule both semesters is to teach one class each semester in kind of a, <clears throat> a round of Old Testament classes. So Genesis last semester, this semester I'm doing poetry and wisdom literature, probably do Genesis next fall if there's another year, and then um, Old Testament prophets in the spring. Uh, my colleague Dr. Pless has sometimes taken history of Israel, but I've taught that too. And then typically teach religion in America in the fall and world religions or non-Christian religions now in the spring. So Old Testament poetry and uh, world religions right now. Um, what, are the, what are the books of the Bible for some of our listeners who may not be familiar that you're going through in that class this semester? Yeah, that, that uh, includes Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and the Song of Songs. Um, I asked the class on Tuesday just to write a little paragraph about which of these they're most familiar with and why, and almost all of them said the Psalms because we have them in church and in school, which was a lot more than they were used in church and school when I was a kid. Um, the King James Bible didn't even print the poetry as poetry, so we didn't recognize it too much. Um, but I, we, we spent a little time today showing that each of them has some surprises that people don't expect, whether it's the apparent pessimism of Ecclesiastes or the Psalms that ask God to curse their neighbors or Song of Songs where they have unusually descriptive uh, mentions of uh, the lover and, lo and beloved's body parts. These are not things you expect to find. So I hope they come at this with a little bit of curiosity, as they often do, compared to uh, history, which they, at least coming in, think they know quite a bit about. And uh, Mike, what do you got? Well, we'll talk about the intro to Scripture. I have two sections of that every semester, two sections of that. And then um, apologetics. And uh, then also uh, Christian worship, so kind of my standard ones. And it's been, it's been good so far. I got uh, fairly full classes, worship is full. And then for apologetics, which is housed under philosophy, I think I'm over 20 maybe, which is pretty good for um, something that's kind of hidden in, the, in a catalog. Um, so I love freshmen in apologetics. I'm not sure how that happened. I'm not quite sure how that's going to go. I know one of them, she's very bright, she'll be fine. The other ones seem to be okay too, but we won't know until we start getting assignments. Oh, in yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I think they're actually, it's, it seems like they're paying attention. They don't seem totally freaked out. Uh, um, they haven't come up to me and wanting to withdraw just yet. So, um, but it's, it's been, it's, those are just fun. Those two are just fun classes. And so, um, it's been, I think it's going to be a good semester. We'll see how the freshman crop of 105 will turn out, too. But uh, then again, you don't know until about halfway through the semester what they're all about. What are you starting with for apologetics? Well, we start off with, um, I start right away with 1 Corinthians 15. And I just kind of s sort of set the stage there and then kind of mention the um, the, the trial. Well, I really make it four things, right? The uh the four options of Jesus Christ. You got to do something with Jesus. He's legend, liar, lunatic, or Lord. Um, to try to get their uh, feet wet, and then we and then we take a step back and we talk about faith and reason. And you got you got to do that. And um, how does this fit into with my Christian faith personally, right? But then how do you combat somebody? And so you know we don't get very far from the from the uh, the symbol from the sinner and the saint and kind of make the case that. Here's the person who is not going to believe without the Spirit because he cannot do anything but unbelief. And here is the person who um, is created. I like to new. call that the Peter, by the yeah, way. The Peter, yeah, and the, and the and Peter and the Ben. <laughs> <Yeah>. um, <laughs> but then finally, and, and then I, I like the analogy that Saint Paul uses in in, in uh, be First Corinthians two. Um, with the spirit of the world and the spirit of God. And, um, and then just say, but apologetics fits in here where you can get people the knowledge of faith, technically, maybe even the assent, the agreement of that, much like the devil knows there's a Jesus, that Jesus Christ is God's son and came to die for the sins of the world, but he does not have the fiducia, the trust. And to say this is where clearly the apologetics 
stops, the, the apologist's work stops, and the spirit must do the fiducia and, and the spirit of God versus the spirit of world. We just kind of play with that quite a bit um, and, and work through that, and then we'll get into some philosophical terms and kind of laying this. We take, we take a couple weeks just to lay the groundwork, and then we'll get into, I start with evidential apologetics, and then we move to more some of the classical philosophical ones like cosmology, ontology, uh, teleology, and um, already, though, we're kind of talking about that split between hard science and soft sciences and how um, some people in, like, let's say, a naturalistic metaphysical worldview would just see that here's the box. You can't go outside the box, and the box is um, things that you can know empirically, can judge, can test and falsify kind of in a laboratory and everything outside of that is opinion at best or non-existent at all, or we're not allowed to talk about those. And so it actually is a fairly fruitful um, couple classes just to get them to know just the landscape of thought. Mark, I'm curious, I meant to ask, where are you starting off with world religions? What what religion gets to come first? Well, that's a good question. And I uh, am very insistent upon the textbook I use, which I've used versions of for over 20 years, several authors have died, somebody else picked it up. But I tell them, as I tell them in American religion, I would like to create a kind of a structure for your thinking so that you know where to hang different religious ideas. You can, you can hear the same truth a hundred times. You can understand it every time and then quickly forget it if you don't know where to put it. So the textbook looks at the religion in terms of four families, and the first family is the primal or the indigenous, which is all over the world and is still around. And uh, I argue it's making a comeback that a lot of Americans are more primal than they let on. Now, I said, of course, this is a matter of perspective. Uh, You'll find many books that will say that these were the original religions. They were concerned with nature and the control of nature and crops and and trying to uh, interact with the spirits. And then religions like Christianity came late. On the one hand, I can understand that you date Jesus at 30 AD, and so you know Hinduism is older and Buddhism is older. I says, but personally, I I believe I think the Christian view is that Adam was a Christian, and that therefore we started with Christianity. I I talk about, in fact, I'll do it later today. I'll talk about the different theories of why we're religious, and usually these theories take on a kind of evolutionary. Uh, concept ideas progress from simple and more frightened ideas to more complex and abstract ideas and then there was this Wilhelm Schmidt who taught a theory of original monotheism that the polytheisms of primal religion are not the early part they're a degeneration and I said unfortunately I get the sense that he was rejected his theory was rejected because he was a Christian but that's really the Christian viewpoint but then to have the indigenous family followed by the Indian family China, Japan, and then, and then the uh, Asian, you know, West Asian, Middle Eastern one. And there certainly are many similarities, and yet uh, we also talk about how there is no grace, as we understand it, in any other, of the other religions. Different prescriptions for how to be good for God, and Christianity is truly unique. I think that gives a—you two back-to-back kind of gives a good sense for kind of what we— with the new category we'll have coming up that we'll talk about later, uh, applied theology, um, kind of how uh, a lot of our courses will try to look at how we can look at and assess other religions or other philosophies, other thought through a Christian lens. I won't have a lot to say. I'll just kind of say what I'm teaching, and that is Theology 110, intro, um, and then I have two sections of ethics, which is also, as Mike said, with apologetics housed in philosophy. Um so we're beginning with that. We're kind of in our early David Foster Wallace phase, and we're going to be reading Consider the Lobster. So we're going to talk a lot about lobsters. Um, watch his commencement speech, and we're kind of talking about just background of what ethics is. Uh, I have Pauline Epistles, and we're starting with the Acts of the Apostles uh, to kind of get background on the early church and Paul. And then I get to teach a history course this semester, which is actually what my PhD is in. Hmm. Um, we have a colleague, a friend of the show, a guest of the show, um, Professor Finnegan, who is working on writing right now. And so I have History 112, which is about 1500 to 1850. And today we got to uh, talk plague, gunpowder, capitalism, uh, all that fun stuff. So 
that kind of gives you a sense for what we're doing as a department. That's three of the five of us in our department here and uh, kind of what we're engaging so far with our students. Unless you guys have anything to add, I think we can probably make our way to the main topic. that brings us to our main topic and we're just going to be basically talking about today it's kind of a, a catch-all um, I guess kind of topic uh, intro to theology and we're going to talk about it first as just what what theology is how it's been divided um, then kind of theology here at the college our experience with it how we intro students to it so our our two classes we offer right now are the 105 and the 110 um, 105 I believe is entitled history of scripture Introduction to Scripture. Introduction to Scripture, sorry. And um, 110 is listed as Intro to Theology, and we'll get into the different backgrounds in in those classes. And then thirdly, kind of maybe, you know, where should the average Joe begin with theology? Or maybe you do theology yourself, you know, what's um, some places to maybe dig? I kind of have in my head with that section maybe two. Um, Someone's interested in the Bible, where do they start, and what do you tell them as they they do start to kind of, as you send them into it? A lot of people will decide, I'm going to read the Bible in a year, and then they get lost with the Israelites in the wilderness somewhere and, <laughs> uh, and, and, and never quite finish it, never make it, even to the New Testament. So maybe we'll talk a little bit about where would you point someone in the Scriptures. But if I can toss it out first, um, I will uh, throw it to either of you two who wants to jump in. Someone asks you, what is theology? Uh, how would you explain it to them? Well, its basic root meaning is theology is the study of God, which is true, and yet um, I think of theology as a study of God in such a way that we are oriented toward him and toward our understanding of life through his lens. Um, In various classes, at one place or another, it'll come up that um, for many people, religious studies and theology is pretty pointless, abstract, and I'll say I, I think that theology or theological questions um, appear in every part of life. Watch, not that anybody does this anymore, but watch the evening news. Every story is inter- has interconnected issues of values and beliefs, and, and um, um, some of them get quite violent, and or there's confrontations of beliefs. I think we're still a far more religious people than we than we often think, you know, there there really there aren't really as many pure materialists around as we might sometimes think, or it's wishful thinking. It's easy, it's easy to say that, you know, this just this life when you're not really thinking you're going to face another life by the end of the day. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think that's a that's a point that try to subtly even in 105, and I'm sure in 110, kind of get to is you can pretend like there's just a bunch of molecules floating around, but that's not how you live. That's not how you live. And, and maybe you don't literally stop and say, who am I, where am I going? What's the ultimate good? But you do within a lot of interactions, maybe to your point about why it's important to study theology too, in a very basic level, I'll, I'll say to my students, especially when I'm justifying my, um, use of maps, like I make them draw out maps. Um, oh. Mike does a lot of maps and PowerPoints. When I walk by, I'm always impressed. They have to they have to draw from hand four maps, one for each unit, and uh, that was a gift given to me uh, when I was in high school, and I and I never forgot the basic Mediterranean world and Holy Land. And um, and I said, listen, when you're listening to something on the news or somewhere has a discussion, and you hear the word Gaza Strip or East Bank or whatever. You don't have to be the dum-dum who, who only pretends like he knows where that is. You can actually know and say, and then that's a springboard to say, Jerusalem's important for geopolitics more than you know. Um, 
And you kind of need to know this stuff if you're going to be a citizen of this world and of this nation. You really, whether, and, and I'm sure we'll get into this discussion too, what do you, what do, you do with a student who says, I, I have no reason to study theology, I'm here for marine biology or whatever, and, and I don't have any, and you may say to them, well, okay, fine, just just look at it as literature right now. We're going to study, and this is the greatest, most influential book in the history of the world, and it and it affects our politics, it affects the way we think, it affects a whole lot of things. You, you just need to know this. Well, forget about you being a Christian for a second. You just need to know this in any field if you're going to be a productive person in this world and a thoughtful person. So there's value even if somebody comes and says, I, I, you know, you're not going to make me a Christian and I'll never be one. Yeah, hmm. and I think I would just add, I would, I would agree, you know, when we're talking theology, we can use that term. We can talk about Islamic theology, uh, you know, Jewish theology, Buddhist theology, Hindu theology. We're talking about how an, a substitute word would, would perhaps be religion, but we're not strictly talking about religion. We're not just talking about a system, but how people think about God or the gods, and then how people think about the relationship. I mean, there's always the aspect of the relationship of people with those gods or with that God. And so um, you're dealing with something that is, I think, ingrained in people, this notion that there is something bigger. And I would agree with Mark that religion will never go away and the religious spirit will never go away. It just gets channeled into different things. And we saw that in the 20th century a lot and with a lot of destruction. That's not to say religion can't reap destruction, too. I think we see it in our in our own day. A lot of challenging, uh, channeling of religious zeal, um, even religious hopes into into political discourse, which is perhaps why we're even more polarized than we have been in the recent past. Um, if only this happens, then this eschatological, you know, uh, result will happen. Of course, heaven is here in that in that view, not not in heaven. But I would say for Christian theology. Uh, what I usually tell students is we're studying how God relates to the sinner in Christ. And just as if you're in the hard sciences and you have um, specific things you study within parameters for how you're going to conduct yourself, you know, the scientific method, whatever, whatever your discipline is, um, Christian theology, uh, at least Protestant Christian theology, certainly Lutheran Christian theology, is going to study the relationship of God with the sinner uh, through the lens of the Word, so the Old and New Testament canon. And so um, flowing out of that canon, we'll get into different fields of theology, uh, but specifically I think for what we're doing here as theologians at the college is really looking at, well, uh, as Mark is very good at saying, I know in his world religions class, well, what's the problem according to the scriptures? The problem is sin. We're sinners. Uh, how does God relate to the sinner or deal with the problem of sin, which, of course, quickly gets us to the cross of Christ? And uh, how would God have us know what that means? Well, that is explained for us by the prophets uh, and the the apostles. Is that a, a somewhat fair way of putting it, gentlemen, or am I off my rocker low there? Well, um, I taught the 105 class for seven or eight years before I handed it over, and Mike was able to probably fix a lot of things and you know project a lot of other things. But just to explain the numbers, the 110 introduction class, what are there, maybe a dozen sections both semesters? I mean, maybe that many. It's a fair amount, yeah. And, and as much as we would like people to be in an appropriate section based on what they know or don't know, uh, placement tests are only marginally successful, so they tend to get placed if they've been in Lutheran grade school, high school, or prep some school. Sort of parochial yeah. So there's a lot of similarity in belief that you can uh, assume when you teach 110, which is fine on the one hand, but on the other hand, it may also have been an environment that taught them individually and collectively to not ask many questions about this. This is just how it is. And so 105 has more diversity that way. And I would say without picking, you know, without taking labels, there were certain people who said, you know, I learned these stories in the Old Testament, but it's sort of as individual moral lessons. And you're treating it as though these things really happened. And I says, well, that's because they did. And others will um, have favorite passages of the Bible. They may be quite well acquainted with parts of the Bible. 
but have no systematic sense at all. So as Lutherans, you know, we grow up with that catechism so early and, again, have this structure to hang truths on and look at everything else in the Scripture through that lens. You can't assume those things. Um, In world religions, I tell students that I used to think that all the other religions were like Christianity. In other words, they all assumed the depravity of human beings and the we all had pictures in our minds of what terrible constantly frightened and agonizing lives that people lived who are not believers and how relieved they are when they hear that they have a savior but but many of the religions people who grew up with that's really not the question at all and in some ways you have to make them worse before you can make them better i, I tell the story that i had a friend who had a very secular person in his adult confirmation class, and I asked how it was going. He says, well, she came in as a happy pagan, and now I've got her to where she's afraid to die. I think that's progress, <laughs> though, don't you? And it seems backwards, but but, but so, so you have to, you, I think with, with our students now, with, with world religions, you have to try to get them to assume that these givens which we have are not there. And yet at the same time, I think people, regardless of their religious teaching, sooner or later come to that point where, like Paul did, where he said, what a wretched man I am. Who will deliver me from this bondage of death? But then the answers are quite different. And, you know, if you're you're deciding, well, I'm going to become a Buddhist just because I think the people are nicer and there isn't all this God talk, you better be right about that because that's a really big decision. Like one of the Seinfeld episodes said, that's a really big matzo ball if you you make that decision. (laughs) Um, And I think... Maybe, Mike, if, um, and if you want to do this, that's if you don't want to do it, then that's fine. One of us can. But Mark already mentioned a couple things there that I think are, are helpful for us to maybe explain or divide now, or define, that is. We, uh, all three of us in this room going through Wisconsin Lutheran Seminary, in one form or another, the chapel before it was redone or, or as it is now, had and has representations in it of the four branches of theology as we tend to have to break up theology in our circles, and I think, as many have broken it up historically, uh, we largely, with the old gen ed and now the new gen ed here at the college, break up theology along those same lines. Uh, if if you would like to take it, Mike, that's fine. Otherwise, I can. But the the four branches of theology, Mark used the term, for instance, systematic. He used uh, historicity. Um, what what? How are we dividing those up? What's maybe a helpful way to think of them? You know, uh, one way would be, sometimes we call it exegetical, but really biblical, right? You're studying the actual texts of Scripture, whether it be in, in an exegetical way where you're getting into the original languages and, and taking apart every sentence, or what we call an isagogical way, which is, um, you know, you're reading it in your language, typically. I mean, there may be some words here and there that you would go to the Hebrew or Greek, but you're saying kind of kind of a... a, a a more wider perspective, let's look at the book of Joel instead of um, digging into just one kind of chapter. So that biblical is one. The other one is systematic. Um, and so this is where I put it into systems. And so I'm going to uh, look at all the different parts in the Bible that are going to talk about God or man or baptism or sin or grace. And uh, it's very helpful to put it into these categories. But as Mark Hughes said, those, you can't assume those categories from other people, and even if they are of a different, even if they are Christian of a different denomination, they may not have those same terminology in those same categories. And and the other danger too is you can pull uh, passages out of their context, right, and not realize that this is a story, especially in the Old Testament, or this is a a full letter of Saint Paul to to a group of people. Um, but you you. On the other hand, you cannot help but systematize. You That's have how to our brands. Yeah. I mean, it's it's very efficient. It's very helpful, and we just have to do it. I mean, you just that's how our brains work. You do it in everyday life. You yeah. systematize everything in life. And then historical. Um, so really, the history of the church, but the history of of doctrine. Right? How did how did this group of people over here? Um, get it right, mess things up. Maybe we need to rethink uh, ourselves a little bit. History and the importance of history, we've talked about that before. And then what we would call, I suppose, practical. So at a seminary, it's how do you preach and how do you do worship? And sometimes we'll call that pastoral at a seminary. Or pastoral. And so those categories are going to be a little different on a liberal arts college 
Um, we're going to call. We're going to have a biblical category. We have a systematic category, although the systematic category kind of swallows up, for the most part, what we would think about as historical. And then um, we're also going to have then what we call applied apologetics, which would be more practical. Applied theology. Applied theology. Excuse me. And <laughs> sorry, <laughs> uh, it's been a long day for all of us. I think. Yeah. Um, uh, apologetics uh, is in applied yes, theology. Yes. Applied theology, and so um, somewhat of a catch-all, but worship falls under that. Ethics, um, world religions would fall under that. Apologetics, building a um, uh, Christ, Christ and culture, and so it's a little bit. It's not a how-to thing, right? It's more, and I think the word applied there. Did I miss one? We got applied. No, I think you got it. Those were we kind of divide those up into those three, plus our intro, um, 105 and 110, and those are kind of the. The four that are that are the bare minimum to graduate from WLC, you got to have one in each of those. I think that's how we're going to do it. And, and, and so. I, I would say, Mark, you can correct me if I'm wrong. We we as a department are uh, four or four historical theologians and an applied theologian as far as our primary fields. Your your PhD was was historical, historical theology. theology. Yeah. Mine is as well. Paul was focused on mystic mysticism, Lutheran medieval stuff, and um, and then Joel is American Lutheran history yeah, too, right? Yeah. And and then Mike would be applied theology with uh, apologetics, vocation, uh, and uh, the worship class. Mark, do you have any thoughts? Maybe on that. I think that is something that might be helpful for us to unpack. Really, when you're teaching world religions, even you're you're doing systematic theology in that you're comparing doctrines. But the relationship between biblical theology and historical theology. Maybe any thoughts you would have on that? Well, yeah, as, as, as Mike related, the, talked about the four branches, I don't know if it's appropriate to say you certainly you have favorites or you... I think that biblical theology and historical theology really work together the way we read the Bible, that you must always read the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, on the historical horizon that the, that the story occurs. So we can't I said before that Adam was a Christian, but that's an anachronism. It can't be true in one sense. But so you have to look at the behaviors of people in the, in the biblical stories in the context of where they were in the story of salvation. Uh, there's no question that systematics is a necessary thing. And I think a lot of the mischief that people do theologically is when they pull passages out of the Bible from wherever out of their context to make them say things that they aren't intended to say. To say, for example, that um, this is a controversial subject, but to say that same-sex marriages are entirely under God's approval because God is love is not looking at the passages in the Bible that talk about that subject, those, those what we call the seats of doctrine. My complaint with systematic theology sometimes is that it flattens out the histor historical part of the Scripture. All passages are pulled out sometimes out of their context. Sometimes they're, they're, they're asked to answer questions the text was never intended to answer. My, my favorite example is in systematic theology where the verse says, there were Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. And somehow, sometimes systematic theology is used, uses that passage to prove that we'll all know each other in heaven. I think that's a stretch. When it comes to practical, I think both our seminary and we have suffered sometimes when people clamor for it to be more practical. Can we have a quarter, half a semester class about how to organize a neighborhood and ring doorbells, um, which really loses the, 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 the sense of it being part of a liberal arts education. And, and well, some people would say, so what's the problem? But it'll turn us more into a Bible college, which we don't want to be. And we would hope that people get that practical experience in extracurricular stuff, uh, in your vicar year, just going out and doing it. Um, but Lutheranism began in the university, and we like to keep it on that on that level. So if, if anything, I would say that the practical aspect of practical theology has declined over the 30 years I've been here. There, there's less of a, a desire to show us how to and more of a sense of thinking your way through these and doing apologetics and ethics and worship and other applied theology. And I think that's helpful just— Applied versus versus practical is is helpful in that in that sense that um, you know I'm thinking these things through which fits in a more liberal arts education instead of okay now here's how you do something and you, you can create as many as you want artificial situations but they're it's it's 
you still got to go live it in the real world. Mm -hmm. And uh, as much as we, we want to do that, and, and we try to do that, I think, and, and can do that in a certain respect. Listen, you know, you're, you know, when you're 30, you'll figure it out. <laughs> After, especially uh, for me in apologetics is, you're gonna have to get your, you're gonna have to lose some arguments in here. And before you actually realize, okay, I should have said that, or I can tell you all day long. Mm -hmm. But finally, you just have to be out there. And I think you guys have both brought out the um, the interconnectedness of these things. And, you know, you, you look at, uh, I've told Mike before I want to do an episode on Antioch and Alexandria and how their Christology led to different views politically of how the emperor should be held to... Uh, with regard to the church. And so you have, for instance, those who held to Orthodox Christology that Jesus is true God, <clears throat> co-equal with the Father, uh, tended to hold that church and state, right, are co-equal as well. And so you have um, Ambrose of Milan, who will be an Orthodox theologian, who is going to actually excommunicate the emperor if he continues to act in an unchristian <laughs> way. The Arians, who see Christ as subordinate to the Father, tended to see the church as subordinate to the emperor or to the state, and a lot of people might say today, well, Christology just isn't practical. But the fact is, the West has been very influenced by Christian theology. Um, we see this in duality of body and soul. We see this in viewing things primarily as right and wrong instead of honor, shame, um, which is how much of the world would view things. We see this in, uh, we just did with Mark, the two kingdoms, how we view um, the realms of church and state. And these all have been impacted by biblical, systematic, historical, and and uh, I like applied theology because it's not detaching it as a separate realm as if other theology is not um, practical. And so there is a lot of crossover between these fields, and I think that is also something that, well, I don't know, maybe you guys don't find it refreshing. I find it refreshing that I do get to teach across the four branches, and I'm not bound to one because I think I would become really stagnant if that were so. Theologically, I would become stagnant. We, we're going through Luther's life in a winging it series, and and we touched on okay, is he you know a nominalist or whatever? And sometimes, and and he would have been, of course, he was um, aware of those terms and and self-aware in a little bit. But finally, he was driven by truth from scripture and you want to label me this way or that way, it's fine. And so we can kind of sit back, especially, you know, having at least a, you know, a decade and a half or for the younger ones in, in, in the practical situation of doing theology, we can kind of make these observations that, you know, we don't want to be, sometimes we are um, beholden to the exegete, right? You know, who's lost in this, this one word. And sometimes, though, we can <laughs> criticize the, 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 the systematician and stuff. We can do that. But when you're doing it, it's not like you sit there and say, oh, now I'm doing s applied theology. Now I'm doing, and, and it reminds me of Luther, who is like, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not going by these labels, you know, if, if over here I'm more like Aristotle and over here I'm more like Plato and you want to live, fine, but um, those are unnecessary categories sometimes. That's, this is the problem with system, systematizing things. It's helpful, but um, you can jump from things to things and from categories to categories and they can bleed together and should uh, bleed together. And I think, and I've mentioned in previous podcasts as we've talked about them a bit, but I, I have grown in my appreciation for the Wauwatosa the theologians as I've been in the ministry longer. But one of the things that can come out of that is sometimes people oversimplify what the Wauwatosans were doing. I mean, obviously, Kaler's doing historical theology. Peeper does a, a lot of systematic, so did, did Schaller. But sometimes that's come into Wells' parlance as, you know, well, as if we're, we're exegetical theology is it. It's the main thing. And then, you know, we don't want to do fodder theology or whatever else. But I, I like that you kind of mentioned that. It is possible for the exegete to get lost, too. I mean, most of us who do theology have met the exegete who is completely lost in a preposition, and you want to say, hey, you want to join us back in the text. You know, <laughs> maybe Paul didn't spend five hours deciding if he should use an or ice there or whatever the case may be. Um, that any of these, if they're divorced from the other, become something less than what God intended them to be. Well, well, two two examples I think of when I think of my own seminary classes at Mequon versus the atmosphere when I was in graduate school. I, I guess people would know if they listened that I was at St. Louis, but 
that I didn't really realize till we talked at St. Louis. And one is that in, in doctrine class, in dogmatics, it was not uncommon at all for any of my dogmatics teachers to pull out a Greek text and put texts on the board and talks about the exegesis of them. All of them were also exegetes. Um, the other is, is that structurally, you take the areas that are in applied or practical theology. Uh, pastoral theology is a general class, preaching, teaching, uh, I suppose worship is in there. Everybody at Mequon who teaches there, I th- I, maybe there's an exception now, but in my time, everybody who taught practical taught in one of the other three disciplines. When I said that at St. Louis, they were both surprising statements, that in my sense, it seemed as though the various disciplines kind of got lost more in their own silo. There were uh, pitch battles is probably too strong a term, but there certainly were rivalries between the exegetes and the historical theologians. And of course, the St. Louis walkout had not been that long ago. And some people pictured the walkout as the, finally the victory of the, of the exegetes over the systematicians. But of course, they also brought a fairly skeptical exegetical assumption. And then the, the practical guys were off on their own. You know, they were a whole separate unit in many ways, and so they would be, some of them would be advocating different styles of preaching or different worship, and then you've got the systematicians or historians. Who, I mean, they weren't talking to each other, was the sense that I had. And um, that that's just the way it had to be. And when I said, well, at Mequon, the person I had for preaching also taught Hebrew and also taught systematics, they were stunned. But I, I think to some extent it was the old... Uh, Wauwatosa's sense of we want to make a good generalist first, which is what all of us came through, too. Yeah. And we all started out, we didn't, I mean, maybe you, maybe in your own mind you said, I will be a professor someday. I never imagined that. They always start you as a pastor or start you as a great Mike school I think Mike and I thought we would or anyone else did. <laughs> no, I still run into the occasional person who says, it's really ironic that you became a professor, <laughs> isn't it? Yeah. Um, but th- 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 it was not a possibility to say I will go through seminary and then immediately go to grad school. But that was, that, that was I won't say common, but qu- happened quite frequently at St. Louis and I think to some extent also at Fort Wayne. Um, so that keeps the, the disciplines kind of overlapping and interacting with each other, which is good. I, I would say one other thing, just to, to shift it a little bit, I think students beyond what they're learning in terms of you know actual mental information, I think we imprint more than we realize. You know, I, a st- an old student will come up and say, I remember the day in class when you said, and I go, oh, no, you know, what, 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 what thing did I say under my breath when I hadn't had enough sleep the night before? But um, John Jeske told me that in writing Deuteronomy for the People's Bible, and I'm feeling again in Judges, and Judges is probably not the book you would think would do this, but you are confessing for the rest of your life and for as long as that book is around what was important to you, what matters, uh, how this even if you don't do anything autobiographical, how it impacts your life and your view of things. And, you know, the way things are in the uh, electronic world, they can get all the content and more just online. But I think they're in class to get us and to get what we bring. Mm-hmm. And I don't want to have a reputation of being known as being able to be taken off course by, tell me about your sailor days or something, and then mm-hmm. you, you, know, you know you can get this professor off. But they are paying attention to that more than, mm-hmm. sometimes more than is comfortable but more than we realize. Yeah. No, I would agree with that. And to go a little off something you were saying, too, with not keeping the discipline siloed, I think it, you know, we we see in church history, in particularly important areas, eras, when there was important doctrinal development or settlements, you know, at Nicaea, um, Athanasius, or later with later councils, the Cappadocians, right, these are people who, while they were doing systematic things, working on creeds, were also doing as best they could, given their knowledge of the languages, depending on you know what their relationship with the Old Testament was, exegesis of Christological texts. And if we think of Luther and Melanchthon, um, most people forget if Luther was teaching in a department at a modern university or seminary, he would have been probably the Old Testament department. Mm-hmm. And uh, <clears throat> so he's a biblical theologian, but also writes catechisms and the Small Called Articles does systematic but it flows from applied theology, the issues of the day, and then um, from uh, the uh, the biblical study he's doing. It's very much shaped by his writings. You can tell what he's been reading. And then Melanchthon, I think one of um, the things Melanchthon did that was really important, and unfortunately he kept tinkering with it, 
But his 1521 Lotzi, you know, is spectacular, especially because it basically is a commentary on Romans in many ways. And, you know, there, there was this clear relationship seen between the biblical text and then the systematizing of it. So I think that is helpful for us to keep in mind. And I, I would agree um, of, the, of the dangers of maybe divorcing those. I, I mean, is anything more textual than preaching or ought it be at least, you know, and, and if how, how good then that sometimes the same person teaching us to mind the text is then te- teaching us how to proclaim it. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mike, we're getting, I, we had a, Peter, when Peter and I talked to Caleb, we said we're going to try to stick to some time restrictions. We, have, we got about 15 minutes. Yeah, so I'm going to toss something to you. Okay. And then, uh, but you go wherever you want to mm-hmm. go. But we've referenced 105 and 110. Maybe if we can just take about five minutes. Um, how would you describe 105 or 110 to people listening as far as the, the intro classes that we teach? Yeah, sure. So uh, I'll do 105. Um, we already kind of described you come in and like in any other any other discipline, you may have to take a test and, and you may have to go to um, uh, one class or the other. And so basically it's those who went to maybe a grade school or high school at a parochial religious school, Lutheran school, probably gets to 110, and then um, everybody else comes to me. <laughs> and so you have a, and I use this analogy, I said, because I, I explained the class, like, this is going to be a different kind of class for a lot of different reasons. One, it's going to be something that's spiritual, right? Right off, <laughs> right when you're in, coming into college, we're going to be talking about spiritual type things. We also have a lot of material. It's a big book. It's a whole lot of history. Um, and so we got to go hundred miles per hour. And so I explain how we're going to do that, um, you know, with quizzes and stuff like that and, and, and try to ease their, ease their attention of, uh, coming into something for maybe some of them completely foreign to them. It's a large book and we're going to do it in one semester. Try to try to ease that tension. But then I say, listen, there, some of you probably were really good at chemistry, maybe went to a school with a really good chemistry teacher, maybe you took some AP chemistry, maybe you took a couple courses, maybe I don't know how, many, uh, uh, how much you were able to do in that particular science. And then some of you just took chemistry and you barely passed. And so you're coming into chemistry here and college, and there's going to be a wide variety of those who had more experience and have, more, and have the knowledge for that and other people that barely got passed. But all of you took chemistry. Now you're coming to this Bible here, <laughs> and this Bible, this Bible class, where some of you don't know even how to open up this book and find something in it, and then some of you who probably maybe went to church every single Sunday and 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 uh, Sunday school every Sunday, and you actually kind of know your stuff. It's a hard class to teach, and but what I try to do is, as we tell the story, is to keep the basic story in line okay the problem here's the first gospel in genesis chapter 3 here is how god's going to do that through the israelites the promise to abraham family land savior i keep it really really simple but then take those individual stories and then try to do something profound first for the person who is like yes i know who abraham is but also for the person who's learning this the first time to say this really is an important book that has a lot of different levels. And really, the intro both to the basic story, but then also some kind of deep stuff. And, and, and once in a while, I get maybe a little bit of criticism here from like, well, you're going way off on something else, you know? But I, I think that's important for those people who are introduced to the Bible that to be, for them to be intrigued, to, to show that this is not just a, a brief history of Israel, but there, there, there are big questions that are being developed here, and and uh, uh, there, you can do that in subtle ways. For instance, I hammer home the word, like the power of the word. In the beginning, things were created with word. What does it say about words in general? What does it say about God's word that it has power? And laying the groundwork for later that the word of God is going to have the power to create a Christian to give faith. And then, and then here is this Jesus Christ who is the word, that kind of stuff. And try to meld together two things in one class. Okay, open up the book. The big numbers are the chapters. The small numbers are the verses. You have to do that. 
Um, but then also to get them to think in grand pictures, things, it's, it's a lot of fun, but it, it, it can be back and forth a little bit. Well, some things you really would take for granted and, and have your, have your, be, be corrected by this. I inherited a few of those PowerPoints from, from Chuck Courtright, and of course I had to get rid of some of the artistic flourishes, but <laughs> I was struck Chuck by how, like much time, yeah, how much time he spent explaining B.C. and A.D., until I started teaching this and realized what a totally foreign concept this was and how some of them go backwards. And, oh, you mean they didn't have a calendar that said 700 B.C.? And, and oh, here they got C.E. They must all be pagans because they're trying to remove, remove Christ from history. And then there were a few people who wanted to get to big questions right away. And this is just way too much, you know, sort of one foot in front of the other drudgery, got to do all this. And it wasn't that they knew it. It was that it was kind of irrelevant to them. So I don't know if you've kept the 12 boxes that I developed, that these are these eras of Old Testament history and which happened and which and give them names, put them in. Kind of confounded the Chinese students, too, actually, when I used it with them. But for me, you, I just have to have the big picture mm-hmm. of, of a sermon, of a book, before I can start realizing what the parts mm-hmm. are doing there and why they're there. Um, that's a cha- No, it's a challenging class. And... Again, the first day, I would probably spend about 20 minutes on the syllabus, and then I would give them one of three prompts to write on. A, I think this is going to be a really easy class, and I'm going to get an A. B, I, I've read the Bible, but I don't know if I've got this in a sort of an organized way. And C, I'm really lost. And then I would collect what they wrote and put some of them up and say, I want you to look around and see you've got classmates who are all of these. And if this is easy for you, help somebody else. Mm-hmm. And if you're, and if it's not easy for you, hang in there. You know, you can get help. We'll we'll work you through it. And I'd look for you know rap songs on the Old Testament books of the Bible and stuff just <laughs> to kind of entertain once in a while. But um, but having half your teaching load of that kind of a spread of students year after year, yet you'll be looking for who the next guy is coming through the doors. <laughs> you can you can kind of integrate them into this. Yeah, it's probably maybe the hardest class, but I find so far, and, and I've only been here a little bit. Um, it's been by far my most enjoyable. It can be very gratifying. Yeah. And, and and just to see the light bulbs of, of good students. And the other thing is you got freshmen, and some of these freshmen maybe aren't going to yeah, they're, be they're, rough. Their difficulties may be their <laughs> abilities as students. Yeah. yeah. And and just to see the light bulb on them to say, one of the first things I say is, the Bible is about Christ. And let me tell you, I'm going to answer, that's going to be on the test, and you better say Christ. Yeah. <laughs> that's not primarily a moral code an inspiring story all this kind of stuff and for the light Basic bulb instructions yeah, before. the light bulb for some of them to say i always thought some of that was outside of the christian church on some some level whether you know just only nominally christian or completely from a different religion that's what i assumed that jesus was a nice teacher like gandhi that this was just whatever sure and for them to say no, this really was a story about a specific person fulfilling a specific role. And then to hit them with 1 Corinthians 15, if Jesus didn't rise and die, then, then you shouldn't be a Christian. This is not a benign thing. Um, and then for me to subtly say to them, not individually jumping down their throat, but you finally got to do something with this Jesus character. Yeah. And um, and I think that's what college is all about. Okay, maybe I came in here, I got to take this class, I'm not particularly spiritual, but the professor lays out this as something that maybe I didn't, I wasn't as thoughtful about this as I was, and then a little bit of a challenge to say, okay, what does this do here in this life? What does this mean here for you personally, for our world? I think it's some kids just take it, of course, but there are, I think there are kids that go from point A to point B very quickly in that class. Like, this is stuff that I need to think about. This was a good experience for me to have in a freshman year to say, I'm now more of a thoughtful person. I maybe not have the answers, but boy, I got to think about these things. Even, even to the point of them coming to the conclusion, this is something I can't not think about. Right. You know, in that sense, all teaching in 105 is a lot like the parables in that you, students can come at it thinking this is just a nice, interesting story. And I think I already knew this one. And then you find out you're drawn into the story personally, and you can't not be born. You have been born. You are here. Therefore, what answer am I going to have to the problems of life? I mean, I can I can treat religion like a, like a buffet table and pick something that's tastier. But what if it's not true? You know, what if this really doesn't offer any kind of an answer? 
uh, I, this is some, on the one hand, this is something they can't avoid, and yet I can't do this for them. I can try to explain my own story or answer their own questions as they come, but they, they can't avoid this. And if they're going to go out, come out of here and be a non-Christian, I can't stop that. But but they, they got to hear from us what it really is. Yeah, I think like you, you use that line that often, it gets repeated, you're quoted more often than you think, but Ooh, you, you, may, you, may leave, you may leave this class, you know, not believing um, Christianity, but we hope that you leave knowing what Christianity actually is or something yeah. like that. Like if you're going to deny it, I want you to deny what it actually is and not some yeah. version of it that's floating out there. Yeah, and yet at the same time, no matter how disinterested the student may be and hate to be there, I'm still going to be his ally in the sense that I'm going to give him the information that I believe is the right way and have him think about it. And then I also think it's hard, but we have to do it in a way not to be offending, offending anybody. But I don't think you really quite had to do this the same way in his school in preparation for the church's ministry. You have relationships which continue on with students that they may never come out the way you want. I mean, it's easy enough. I shouldn't say it's easy. I could understand where in, you know, a, a worker training system, you sit down with a kid and say, well, look, you're, you're not even a Christian if you're not a Christian, and then this, this isn't the place for you to be because we, we don't expect to have non-Christians in our ministry. But here they stay, and, and often, not always, and, and they're, they may still relate to you and want to talk to you, and uh, he, I'm going to know he's a Buddhist or a, a pagan. I think about my pagan student. They'll continue being a pagan when they leave. And again, somewhat like the stories of Jesus in the gospel, we'd like to know how this is going to turn out, but we don't know. Mm-hmm. So, I do think if I can get just a little bit in, uh, to 110, um, it's helpful to see. We, we said we were going to talk a little bit. Mike just held up five minutes after talking way long about 105. So, um, <laughs> But I, um, I do think the 105 is actually probably an easier way for people to relate to if you're getting started in theology, how to get started in theology and some places to look. And I think Mark and Mike bring out a lot in that, that of what people might be going through, thinking about as they do so. Um, 110, as Mark said, is definitely um, students who are coming with a background. Um, most have come from some sort of parochial school. That doesn't necessarily mean Wells Lutheran. Um, oftentimes it's LCMS. It might be um, maybe they were homeschooled. Um, but with a, a religious background, uh, sometimes Catholic parochial school, but they've had some ex- they've had a fair amount of religious education, um, Christian religious ed- education. And so I would say one of the roles that 110 plays that maybe is different than 105 is it's trying to provoke in different ways. Uh, you guys end up trying to provoke people to think about stuff maybe they haven't been thinking about much. And I'm maybe trying to provoke to get people to realize maybe they haven't thought all that much about. Uh, stuff they think they already know. And uh, and so you, you will get a fair amount who will come in who say, you know, I've already had catechism class. I had religion in high school. Um, I remember one student asking me before taking my Luther course, um, I watched the Luther movie in high school. Will I get anything out of this course? And I, <laughs> I wanted to write back, no, you're going to spend four months and we'll cover nothing that wasn't covered in a <laughs> fictionalized 90-minute movie. Um, but, uh, <clears throat> but 110, I would say, has a wider breadth. And for that reason... Uh, maybe doesn't get to accomplish as much specifically as 105 does relating to the scriptures. So we walk the students first through the scriptures, and we've been revising that, and I've been pretty happy with how it's revised so so far, working with, with Paul and Joel here. Um, I take them now through uh, a, a fair amount of Genesis. Um, we get a little bit more taste of the Old Testament, but then we go through Mark. We get some Romans, some Galatians, to give us a little bit more extended sense for how to read a biblical text before it was kind of here's a chapter to show you what poetry is like here's a chapter to show you know um what an epistle is like and to whet the appetite but maybe not actually have a student engage a text as much which is something they get to do more in 105 but where 110 maybe gets a little bit ambitious and sometimes it's like throwing spaghetti against a wall um although i do enjoy it is it then does try to look briefly at church history to give a kind of a big outline of church history, uh, but then we do try to do some systematic theology, and something that we've gone to now is using the large catechism for that section, um, which I've found to be very helpful. For So students are going to get their doctrine in the sense of a large catechism. Some have done the small, right, in their past, but to go through the large catechism. 
And then in connection with that, we have them read Gene Veith's Spirituality of the Cross to kind of get how this relates, how doctrine relates to life, um, to a sense of vocation, God's calling in our daily life. And then we finish with The Hammer of God by Bo Geert. So I know Bro, Bro Erickson will be happy with that. Um, we've recorded with him on Geertz. And I largely have them read that. They do presentations, and they have to work through that themselves. And someone may be a fan of the novel or not be a fan of the novel. I, I actually do like the novel. I know some think it's too kind of written to the the point that he wants to teach. But um, it's interesting to see them pick up on law and gospel in these various situations and how law and gospel are then applied. So even if someone to say, well, Bo Geertz wrote that too simplistically to cater to law and gospel, well, it works then, at least with these students. Um, but what we're largely trying to do with 110 is to get students who have come in thinking, okay, they've learned their religion. Uh, these are the same students that sometimes, you know, need extra encouragement for chapel because they've gone to chapel. They think they've filled their chapel quota up, um, is to kind of get them to realize this isn't You've learned the right that you've you now are are have learned enough to of the framework to actually start to dig in, and my hope with one ten is to always peak interest so that then they use they have to take twelve credits here so they have three other courses that maybe they can navigate then maybe their appetite is wet for uh, poet Old Testament poetry um, maybe it's it's wet for um, for ethics or for Pauline epistles. Uh, the Genesis course, obviously, as we look at that, um, that's one of the goals with 110. Just last question, uh, and we only got, I'm going to give us five minutes on this. So we only got five minutes, but we don't have a bell like ring set or anything. <laughs> um, someone's interested in beginning in theology. I would say to them, uh, if from a Lutheran perspective, I would say to them, it's good to have a Bible, it's good to have the small catechism, it's good to have a hymnal. Um, but if you could point them to anything in any of those three or something you would add to supplement, or if you want to speak to what books would you have them read first in the Bible, any thoughts you two have on, on that? Someone wants to get started learning about Christian theology, where would you point them? I, I think maybe Luther's answer would be the Psalms. Um, I would say I, I would point them to actually Luke. Um, because I think there is enough history. There's a little bit of familiarity there. It's going to tell you the story of Jesus, um, not in a, a John way, which is going to be up in the clouds. That that's beautiful. It'll come later. Although John has its, you know, at the end, of course, is is very full in in the Passion. Um, and I don't think I, I would not shy away from Genesis. I would say do this and then look at these people that you think are great because you've heard their name, Abraham, Moses, people like that, and just look at how sinful they are. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the right perspective today's age because we kind of got this idea as in America, oh, God's so angry all the time. What's the deal? Well, look who he's dealing with a little bit. And then to see... You could see the total depravity of man without having to use the word total depravity because you see it on the pages of Scripture. And those two bookends, you know, one of the Gospels, maybe Mark because it's it's shorter, and then and then and Genesis, I think, would be the place I would go. Um, but Psalms too, because it's personal. But I'll, mm -hmm. I'll end there. What do you got, Mark? Well, I like Luke also. I mean, I, I mean, I I don't have really have a favorite gospel, but I think his his emphasis on Jesus' compassion and and especially the parables of grace um, are, are just so outrageous in a certain sense. I mean, he uses illustrations from his everyday life and then has somebody behave in a way that is absolutely just mm -hmm. outlandish. And I guess it, 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 I, I would think that could help move a person away from the sort of a, of a humdrum, well, of course, God forgives us. He has to, to the amazingness of this. I teach Genesis, and of course, I, I have students who feel they know Genesis pretty well until they read the stories between the stories. Uh, I don't know, you know, if, if I had sort of a thoughtful skeptic, I might even take them to Ecclesiastes and say, if you want to think about what life would be like if there were no God, you know, if you said, why don't you get the hell out of my life? And God says, okay, I will. You're not going to like it. So this is what it is. I think I would take them to, uh, 
to Galatians and then to First Corinthians. Galatians for the passion of Paul's own experience and the and the the all encompassing majesty of the gospel against works. And then Corinthians, how how really awful the church can still be. You know, I mean, <laughs> I think people who are seekers become very disillusioned when they find out what the church is really like, and how people can still be all the sins that they have everywhere else, and they expect more and find sometimes even less. Well, this this isn't the kingdom of you know glory yet, and and Paul kept on saying, "You are God's children. You have every spiritual gift." But now we got to talk here. Yeah, I like those choices. I was gonna go with um, Esther, Ezekiel, James, and Revelation. <laughs> okay. I'm just joking, but I, I'm actually preaching yeah, on Esther. And six the sermon next on the mount might help there too. Yeah. yeah. No, I think those are good suggestions. And and if listeners have any questions, as always, you can email us, uh, shoot us a comment. If you have a question for Dr. Brown, we're happy to pass that on as well. But, uh, I mean, Mark's been on so often, I don't know he has to do this. I'll leave it up to either of you two to answer. But we've talked about Intro to Theology, um, the justified sinner, getting to know the justified God. And as we do that, as we dig into the four branches, end of the day, what's it all about? Letting the bird fly. Okay. Every evening when the sun goes down, get with my party and I begin to cry. I don't care what the people are thinking. I'm not drunk, I'm just a drink. I set them up another round. I set them up another round. I set them up another round. One more round won't get me down.